You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 155 by Rudolf Steiner, Ten Lectures in Three Parts, entitled Christ and the Human Soul, translated by Agnes Schneeberg de Stur. This is the first part, The Meaning of Life, Lecture 2, given in Copenhagen on May 24, 1912. It would be a serious mistake to imagine that the question about the meaning of life and existence could be introduced in such a way as to simply ask, quote, what is the meaning of life and existence, close quote, and that someone then would be able to give a simple answer in a few words, possibly saying, quote, this or uh, that is the meaning of life, close quote. In that way, one would never be able to gain a real sense, a conception of the magnificence, majesty, and power that lie hidden behind this question about the meaning of life. It is true that an abstract answer might be given, but you will sense from what I shall be saying later on how unsatisfactory such an answer would be. One might say, quote, The meaning of life is that the spiritual beings to whom we look up as divine beings shall gradually bring humanity to the stage where it participates in the evolution of existence so that human beings who were imperfect in the beginning of their development and were incapable of taking part in the whole building of the universe might in the course of evolution gradually be trained to participate more and more in this evolution. That would, however, be an abstract answer, telling us very little indeed. In point of fact, what we need to do in order to receive even just an indication of an answer to a question of such far-reaching importance is to familiarize ourselves with certain secrets of existence and life. Let us therefore continue our considerations, which would be based on those already presented yesterday, and in this way penetrate a little more deeply into the mysteries of existence. When we observe the world around us, we should actually not be content just to see growth and decay. We have already pointed out yesterday that our souls are mysteriously affected by growth and decay when we search for the meaning behind all this growing and decaying. But there is something that poses an even more difficult, more enigmatic question. As we look more closely at growth and decay, things become even more mysterious. What we observe in growth itself is something very remarkable something that gives us a feeling of sadness and of tragedy, if we look at it only superficially. If, with the knowledge gained from the physical world, we look at the widths of the ocean or at any other field of existence, we know that countless eggs, countless seeds come into being, but that very few of these grow into fully developed beings. Think how many eggs the various fish species lay in the sea every year that disappear before ever reaching their goal of becoming fully grown fish. Think how only a very small number of these eggs reach maturity. 
Yesterday we considered the fact that everything that comes into existence has to perish again. Now we are forced to consider the other fact, namely that in the infinite domain of incalculable possibilities, only a few become realities. That, therefore, even in the actual process of becoming, there is already something enigmatic, inasmuch as what strives to come into existence cannot quite accomplish this process of becoming. Let us look at a specific case. If we sow a field with wheat, we see myriads of ears of wheat springing up. We know quite well that out of every single grain in those ears of wheat, a new ear can come into existence. We can then ponder the question, how many of all those grains of wheat that we see in the field will actually reach this potential? Think of the infinite number of grains that go in a direction different from their actual purpose, namely that of developing into ears of wheat in their turn. Here we have a specific concrete example of something that can be seen in all of life's seeds, and we cannot but come to the conclusion that this life that is all around us only comes into being because in this process of becoming it seems to plunge myriads of its seeds into an abyss of non-fulfillment. Let us keep this in mind. Let us contemplate the fact that what exists everywhere around us is built on a groundwork of infinitely rich potential which never becomes reality in the ordinary sense of the word. Let us keep in mind that it is from such a foundation of possibilities that realities arise. And think of this as one side of the mysterious life existence that presents itself to us. Now, let us turn to the other side of the picture, which also exists, but which we only become aware of when we enter more deeply into esoteric truths. The other side is the one that presents itself to us when we follow the path to spiritual knowledge. As you know, this path to spiritual knowledge is sometimes described as dangerous. Why? For the simple reason that when we want to follow the path to spiritual knowledge, we enter a realm that cannot, as a matter of course, be accepted in the form in which it presents itself to us. Suppose someone were following the spiritual path by the methods known to you, which are described in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, and reached the point where imaginations, as they are called, arose from the depths of that person's soul. We know what image formations these are. They are visionary images that confront us when we are following the spiritual path as a world entirely new to us. If we follow this path with real earnestness, then we reach a stage where the whole physical world around us grows dim. In place of this physical world, there arises a world of rising and falling images, a world of surging impressions of a sound, smell, taste and light-like nature. This world presses and whirls into our field of spirit vision, and we then experience what may be called imaginative visualizations, which surround us on all sides and constitute the world in which our soul then lives and weaves. Now, if we were to assume that the visionary world appearing to us in this way is something entirely real, then we would be gravely mistaken, and this is also the point where the danger begins. 
The realm of visionary life is immeasurable and will remain so unless we rise from imagination, for it is imagination that conjures up this visionary world, to inspiration. It is only inspiration that tells us which image we must concentrate on, which image we must turn to with our spirit vision in order to experience truth. That all the countless other images surrounding this one image must vanish into a, quote, beingless nothingness, close quote, German Wesenloses Nichts. And that this one image will then emerge from the countless others and will prove itself to be an expression of the truth. Accordingly, when we follow the spiritual path, we enter a realm of innumerable vision possibilities and must develop the ability to select from this realm of infinite possibilities those images that truly express a spiritual reality. No other guarantee is possible than the one just mentioned. For suppose someone were to come and say, quote, as one is entering a realm that is infinitely rich in visions, which are true and which are false. Can you not give me a rule whereby I can distinguish the true from the false? Close quote. No genuine esotericist would reply to these questions by giving that person a rule. Instead, every esotericist would have to say, quote, If you wish to learn how to make such a distinction, you must go on developing yourself. Then you too will get to the point where it will be possible for you to focus on those images that stand firm as you view them, for the images that endure are the ones that are compatible with the level of vision you have reached, whereas those that you extinguish are merely secondary images. And the danger now lies in the fact that many people feel extraordinarily comfortable and happy in the realm of visions, and once they are surrounded by a visionary world, are therefore reluctant to develop themselves further, to continue striving, because this visionary realm pleases them so much. But it is impossible to attain to truth in spiritual life when we simply surrender to this feeling of bliss and, as it were, revel in this visionary world. This impedes our ascending to reality, to truth. We must go on striving with all the means at our disposal, for only then will the spiritually real set itself apart from all the countless possibilities of vision. Let us now compare the two things I have described. On the one hand, there is the outside world that lets countless possibilities of life be generated, but allows only a few to attain their goal. On the other hand, there is the inner world to which we are led by the path of knowledge, the inner world with an infinite world of visions that must be compared to the outer world with its infinite possibilities of life seeds. We ultimately attain only to a few of the visions, and these can indeed be compared to the few real lives that actually arise from among the numerous life seeds. These two things correspond exactly. These two things certainly belong together in the world. Now, let us carry this thought a little further by asking, quote, 
Would it be useful to be disturbed and sad about life and existence because this outer life lets myriads of seeds only partially come into being? Because it lets only a few seeds reach their goal? Should we opt to be sad about these things? Should we opt to say, quote, All around there is a wild struggle for survival which only a few evade by accident? Close quote. Consider the earlier example of the wheat field. Suppose all the grain kernels growing there were to achieve their goal and become new ears of wheat. What would be the result? The world could not exist, since the creatures for whom the grains provide nourishment would have no food. In order for these creatures, creatures so well known to us, to reach their present stage of evolution, other living things must fall short of their goal and sink into the abyss, as it were, with respect to achieving their own goal. Despite this, we have no reason to be sad, unless we wanted to claim that the world means nothing to us. And if the world does mean something to us, and since it consists entirely of living creatures, then we also know that it must be possible for these beings to find nourishment. If they are to find food, then other beings must sacrifice themselves. Therefore only a few seeds of life can actually reach their final goal, while others must go another way. They must go another way, because the world has to remain in existence, and because this is really the only way in which the world can be wisely ordered. The only reason, then, that we are surrounded by a world such as ours is that certain creatures sacrifice themselves before they reach their potential goal. If we follow the course taken by the ones that have sacrificed themselves, we find them in other beings that are more highly organized, beings that need this sacrifice in order to be able to exist. Here, then, we have grasped one corner, so to speak, of the meaning of this seemingly so mysterious existence, which can come into being and yet can also sink into annihilation. Yet we have also discovered that it is precisely in this reality of life that wisdom and meaning of existence are revealed, and that it is only our understanding that is not comprehensive enough when we lament that so many things must sink into the abyss in such a seemingly pointless manner. Let us now turn once more to the other side, the spiritual side, and look at what we have called the limitless world of visions. We shall, in fact, have to explore what the real meaning is of this infinite world of visions. This world is not wrong, in the sense of simply saying that what falls away is wrong and what remains in the end is right. This world of visions is not wrong in that way. Such a judgment would be as short-sighted as claiming that the seeds that do not reach their potential goal are not really seeds at all, or that the imaginations which from our perspective disappear in infinity are not real imaginations. Just as we are confronted in external life by the fact that only a few beings reach their potential goal, so can only a small part of the immeasurable spiritual life enter our horizon. Why? Contemplating this question can teach us a great deal. Suppose you were to simply give yourself up 
to the immeasurable variety of visions streaming in on you. Once this visionary world had opened up for you, you would then have these visions streaming into you continually. One after another, they would come and go and surge and flow into one another. It would be quite impossible to shut yourself off from the images and impressions pulsating around you in the spiritual world. On closer observation, however, we find something very peculiar in someone who thus simply surrenders him or herself to this visionary world. When we encounter such a person who has no desire to develop further, but would rather remain in the visionary realm, we discover to begin with that this person has experienced something, has had certain experiences. Very well, we say. You have had spiritual experiences. You have experienced things that are realities to you. Excellent. That is a manifestation from the spiritual world. But when another person then comes, who is no more developed than the first one, we will soon find that what he tells us about his visions concerning the same subject is quite different. And so it is quite possible to have two differing statements about the same subject. We may even find that things can get worse still. We may discover that people who wish to stay with a merely visionary world say differing things about a particular subject at different times, that on one occasion they tell us one thing and on another occasion something else. It is unfortunate indeed that visionaries usually have a bad memory and tend to forget what they mentioned the first time. They are not conscious of what they have already told us. In short, we are dealing here with an immeasurable variety of phenomena. If, as ordinary human beings, with our earthly eye, capital, we wanted to form correct judgments about all the things that present themselves in the visionary world, then we would have to compare an infinite number of visions. But this would lead nowhere. The basic principle that applies here is that although this visionary world is indeed a manifestation of the Spirit, it does not have any value as attestation. No matter how many visions may come to us, they are manifestations of the spiritual world, but they are not truths. If they are to become truths, we would first have to take the various visions one person has, compare them against one another, and then also against those that many others have, and that is impossible. Or, alternatively, there is the possibility of further development and reaching the stage of inspiration. Once people have reached that stage, we will find that all their statements about a particular subject are alike. Then there are no more differences, nothing that appears differently to different persons. The experiences are then actually the same for all those who have reached the same stage of development. Now we return to the other situation, the one that to some extent parallels this one, the situation that we find in the outer world. In that case we placed the few seeds of life that reach their potential goal in the context of the many that sink down into the abyss. We know that this loss is necessary so that the outer world can continue to exist. But what is the comparable situation with regard to the spiritual world and these visions and inspirations? 
With regard to this realm, we must be absolutely clear that what we have before us, once we have selected the visions, stands before us as true spiritual realities, that what we have before us are not merely images that show us something in the ordinary sense of the word. This is not the case, and I shall now clarify the reason for this with the help of a very meaningful example. I shall explain how the selected visions stand in relation to the world, just as we previously clarified for ourselves how the life seeds that have reached their goal stand in relation to the life seeds in general, which serve as nourishment for others. What then is the situation regarding the selected visions, those that live in human beings as real visions? I must draw your attention to something here. You must not believe that those who have reached the stage of clairvoyance have the world of the Spirit living in them, while the others do not. You must not picture clairvoyance in such a way that you say something like, quote, Here is a clairvoyant, and there is another person. In the soul of the clairvoyant there lives an expression of spiritual reality, but not in the soul of the other. Close quote. That would not be right. Instead, if you wish to articulate this correctly, you would have to say, quote, Here we have two people. The one is clairvoyant, the other is not. Whatever the clairvoyant sees also lives in the other person. The same things, the same spiritual impulses, live both in the non-clairvoyant and in the clairvoyant. These things are also present in the soul of the non-clairvoyant. Close quote. The clairvoyant differs from the non-clairvoyant only in that he sees them, whereas the other does not. The one bears these things within him and sees them, whereas the other also bears these things within him but does not see them. If we were to believe that a clairvoyant has something within him which others do not, then we would be making a great mistake. Just as the existence of a rose does not depend on whether someone sees it or not, so it is with clairvoyance. Reality lives in the soul of the clairvoyant and in the soul of the non-clairvoyant, although the latter does not see it. The only difference, then, is that the one sees it and the other does not. And so it is indeed a fact that all the things a clairvoyant perceives by means of his clairvoyance live in the souls of all human beings on earth. Let us impress this firmly onto our souls before we continue. We shall now turn to a seemingly very different field of observation, which will, however, later lead us back to what has already been said. Let us turn our attention, shall we say, to the animal world. The world of animals surrounds us in a wide variety of individual shapes, and those of lions, bears, wolves, lambs, sharks, whales, and so on. We distinguish between these animal forms by developing outer concepts of them, by forming the concept lion, the concept wolf, the concept lamb, and so on. Now, it is important not to confuse the concept we have formed with what a lion or a wolf really is. You know that in spiritual science, I just want to remind you of this, we speak of the so-called group souls. All lions share a common lion group soul. All wolves, a wolf group soul. It is true that some abstruse philosophers maintain that what the animals have in common only exists in concepts, that, in quotes, wolfhood, does not exist in the real world, 
but this is incorrect. Whoever believes that wolfhood as such, in other words, that which is factually present in the spiritual world as group soul, does not exist except as a concept, should consider the following. In the world outside us there are creatures we call wolves. Let us assume for a moment that the soul nature and characteristics of the wolf result from the type of substance that forms the wolf's body. We know that the substance of an animal's body changes continually. The animal takes in new substance and discards the old. In this way, the material comprising the substance changes continually. However, the important thing is that there is something in the wolf that transforms the substance it absorbs into wolf substance. Let us suppose that, with all the means and methods available to science, we had determined how long it takes for the wolf to renew its whole material substance. Then let us suppose that we isolate the wolf for that duration and feed it nothing but lambs, so that for the time it takes the wolf to completely renew its bodily substance, its food consisted only of lamb substance. If the wolf were nothing but the physical substance from which its body is built up, then it ought to have turned into a lamb by that time. Yet you would never believe that the wolf, having eaten nothing but lambs for that whole time, would now have changed into a lamb. You will see from this that the concepts we form about the various animal shapes correspond to realities, realities that are of a supersensible nature as opposed to what exists in the sense-perceptible world. The same applies to all the animals. The group soul, that which underlies each animal species as a whole, is what makes one animal a wolf, another a lamb, one a lion, and another a tiger. We clarify for ourselves what the group soul is in the concepts we form. The concepts we generally form, especially of the animal world, tend to be rather incomplete. Our concepts are incomplete because in our present condition we do not enter very deeply into realities but really only cling to the surface of things. If we were to penetrate more deeply, then we would be able upon forming the concept wolf to have in our soul not merely the abstract concept but also the mood of feeling that corresponds to this concept. In this way, a specific feeling would be generated together with the concept, and we would then, in forming the concept wolf, experience what wolf existence really is like. We would feel the, quote, ferocious nature of the wolf, close quote, or the, quote, patience of the lamb, close quote. That this is not the case today is due to the fact I can only put this symbolically for the moment, but you already know the corresponding realities, that the human being, after having been exposed to the Luciferic influence, was prevented by the gods from also attaining life, in quotes, in addition to, in quotes, knowledge. The human being was not to eat of the tree of life. Consequently, the human being has only knowledge, and cannot experience the real essence of life. This one can only do by accessing this realm as spiritual researcher, through spiritual science. Then one does not merely have an abstract concept, but one actually lives in what is expressed by the terms 
quote, the ferocious nature of the wolf, close quote, or the, quote, for the patience of the lamb, close quote. You will now understand how great the difference is between these two situations, how all these things are in conflict within us when the concepts are filled with the inmost essential soul substance. But those striving for spiritual science and clairvoyance must form these concepts for themselves. They must rise to the level of these concepts. Once a clairvoyant has risen to that level, it can be said that some of these aspects are already living in him and indeed a living image of the whole external animal world is now alive in him. We might be tempted to think that those who have not become clairvoyants are rather fortunate in this respect, but I have already pointed out that in this sense there is no difference between a clairvoyant and a non-clairvoyant. What is in the one is also in the other. The only difference is that the one sees it and the other does not. In reality, the whole world of which I have been speaking is in every human soul. Only an ordinary person does not see it. This is the world that surges up from the hidden depths of the soul, making us uneasy, dragging us down into doubt, pulling us hither and thither, and producing this play of desires and instincts within us. The things that do not rise above a certain threshold that express themselves only in weaknesses, are nonetheless present. Those with a mental disposition of this sort are connected to the world in a way that makes these feelings take hold of them, grabbing them in their struggles and in life, and and bringing them into troublesome relationships with human and other beings. This is how things are, but why? If this were not so, then the evolution of our earth would, in a certain sense, have come to an end at the animal stage. The animal kingdom as it now is would then have become a kind of final stage. It would not have progressed any further. All the group souls of the animals living around us would be unable to develop beyond the present stage and into future embodiments of our earth. This would be a strange situation. For these group souls of the animals would be in a position resembling, please forgive the comparison, but it will clarify what is meant, a nation of Amazons into which no male is allowed to enter. Without men this nation would die out. It is true that it would not die out spiritually, for the souls would pass over into other realms. But as an Amazon community, that would be its fate. In the same way, the community of the animal group souls would have to die out if nothing else existed. For what lives in the animal group souls must be fertilized. It will be unable to get beyond this stumbling block in earthly evolution and move on into the next embodiment of the earth, the Jupiter existence, unless it is fertilized by what I have been describing. In this way, the animals in their outer earthly form die out but the animal group souls are fertilized and appear on Jupiter, having been prepared for a higher state of being, and thus attain the next stage of their evolution. What is it, then, that human beings bring about by inwardly forming living concepts of these group souls? In doing this, they create the fertilizing seeds for the group souls, which would otherwise be unable to evolve any further. Keeping this in mind, we can come to realize 
that it means something for the animal kingdom when human beings, stimulated by outer observations of the animal kingdom, develop certain inner impulses which become fertilizing seeds for the animal group souls. These impulses that arise as fertilizing seeds for the animal group souls come into being through stimulus from outside. But it is not through external stimulus that the visions of the clairvoyant come into being, and neither do those visions that are selected as the real ones. These visions exist directly in the spiritual world and live in the souls of human beings. But you must not believe, when many cereal grains are consumed and only a few can develop into new ears of wheat, that nothing comes to pass in the spiritual world. When the cereal grains are consumed, the spiritual element that is connected with them passes over into the human being. What actually takes place can be seen best by someone with clairvoyant vision when he looks out over the ocean and observes how, out of the many fish eggs, only a few develop into fully grown fish. He can then see that the ones developing into fully grown fish have tiny flames inside them, whereas those that do not develop physically, those that disappear into the abyss physically, have mighty flaming light forms. In them the spiritual element is all the more considerable. And the same applies to the wheat and other cereal grains that are consumed. The material part is eaten, and as it is being pulverized, there arises out of these cereal grains that have not reached their goal a spiritual force that fills the space all around. This is what the clairvoyant sees. Also when he observes someone eating rice or something similar. As the person takes in the material part, unites with it, the spiritual forces that were connected with the grain sparkle forth in great streams. None of this is very straightforward for spiritual observation, however, especially when the food eaten is not of plant origin. But I do not intend to say more about this today, since it is not for spiritual science to lobby on behalf of any party ideology, including that of vegetarianism. And so it is that spiritual beings are joining forces. Everything that appears to perish relinquishes its spiritual essence to the surroundings. This spiritual essence, which is given up to the surroundings, actually unites with what inside human beings lives in their visionary world, whether they become clairvoyant or not. And the visions selected by means of inspiration are the ones that fertilize the spiritual essence, which is pressed out of the life seeds that do not reach their goal, and bring it to further evolution. In this way, that is, through what is developed inwardly, our inner being maintains a continual relationship with the outer world, working in cooperation with it. This outer world would be doomed to perish and would be incapable of developing further if we were not to bring those fertilizing seeds to it. There is spirituality, German Geistigkeit, out there in the world as well. But it is only half a spirituality, as it were. If this spirituality outside of us is to have offspring, 
then that other spirituality living within our inner being must come to meet it. What lives within us is not by any means a mere reflection, a mentally perceived copy of what is outside. Rather, it is what belongs to it. It unites with what is outside us and continues to develop. Just as a north and south pole must come together as magnetism or electricity if something is to happen, so must that which is being formed in our inner being, in the world of visions, come together with what flashes forth from things that seemingly perish. These are wonderful mysteries, riddles that are gradually solved and show us how the inner is related to the outer. Now, let us look at what surrounds us in the outer world and at what we have as selected visions, at what is singled out from the immeasurable possibilities of visions. The visions we select as the ones relevant to us serve our inner development. The ones that disappear sink down from among the immeasurable field of visionary life do not sink down into nothingness. Rather, they merge with the outer world and fertilize it The visions we have selected serve our own further development. The other ones leave us and unite with what is around us, with all the life that has not achieved its goal. Just as living creatures must assimilate the things that have not attained their life potential, so must we absorb the things that we do not hand over to the outer world for its fertilization. There is purpose in this. Everything that is continually coming into being spiritually in the world would have to perish if we did not let go of our visions and did not select only those perceived as relevant by means of inspiration. Now we come to the second point of danger regarding visionary life. What happens when a person simply takes all the innumerable and varied visions as truth, does not select what is relevant for him or her? and does not extinguish the far more plentiful number of visions. What happens when a person does this? It would be the spiritual equivalent of what would happen in the physical world when someone confronted with a field of wheat would not use the greater part of it as food, but rather would use all the grains as seeds to be sown anew. By comparing this with a situation in the physical world, you can immediately see the implications. Before long, there would be no more room on the earth for all that wheat. This could not go on, for everything else would die out. There would be no food left. It is the same with the person who takes everything as truth, who does not discard a single vision and inwardly holds on to everything. Inside that person, it would then be as though he were gathering all the grains of wheat and sowing each one anew. Just as the world would soon be saturated with wheat fields and cereal grains, so would such a person be overloaded with visions if he were not to single out the relevant ones. I have described the worlds that surround us both physically and spiritually, the animals and also the concepts we form about these things. I have also shown how human beings must assign a specific purpose to their visions and how this visionary world must be united with the outer world so that evolution can advance. But what is the situation when we turn our attention just to the human being? We consider an animal, contemplate its group soul, and we say wolf. 
In other words, we have formed the concept wolf. And as we say this word, the image has sprung up in us, an image which for a non-clairvoyant, however, lacks a soul and feeling association. It is only an abstract concept. That which lives in the inner soul and feeling substance unites with the group soul and fertilizes it when the human being articulates the name wolf. If we were not to pronounce the name, the animal kingdom as such would die out, and the same is true for the plant kingdom. What I have just described with regard to the human being applies only to human beings, not to animals, and also not to angels and other beings. These have quite other tasks. Only human beings have the task and are called upon to meet the external world with their essential being, so that fertilizing seeds can arise which then find expression in, in quotes, names. And so what has been implanted into the inner nature of the human being is the possibility for the animal and plant kingdoms to keep evolving. Let us now return to the starting point we chose yesterday. Yahweh, or Jehovah, was asked by the ministering angels why it was specifically the human being he wanted to create. The angels could not understand this. Then Yahweh gathered the plants and the animals and asked the angels what were the names of these beings. They did not know. The angels had tasks other than that of fertilizing the group souls. The human being, however, was able to tell the names. This is how Yahweh showed that he needs human beings because otherwise creation would die out. For it is in human beings that those things evolve further which in creation have reached their end and need a renewed stimulus so that evolution can continue. This is why it was necessary for the human being to be created and join creation so that those fertilizing seeds could come into being that are expressed in names. And so, we see that it was not without purpose that human life was given a place inside creation. Think human beings away from the scene, and the transitional kingdoms would be unable to evolve any further. They would meet the fate that befalls a plant world when it is not fertilized. Only because of the fact that human beings were given a place in earth existence is the bridge built between the world that was there before and the world that comes afterward. And human beings take for themselves, for their evolution, that which lives as name amid the mass of created beings, thus securing their own ascent together with the whole of evolution. Here we have, albeit not in a simple abstract way, the answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? Although the abstract answer is actually contained in it as well. Human beings have become the helpers of the spiritual beings. We have become this through our whole being. What we hold within us has become the fertilizing seed for the whole creation. Human beings must exist. Without them, creation could not exist. Knowing ourselves to be in the midst of creation we feel that we are participants in divine spiritual creativity. And now we also know why our inner life is as it is. Why outside us there is the world of the stars, the clouds, the kingdoms of nature and everything that belongs spiritually to these. And why inside us 
there is a world of soul life. For we now see that these two worlds belong together and that evolution only advances because these two worlds mutually affect one another. Outside us, the infinite world spreads out in space. Inside us is our soul world. We do not notice that what lives within us flashes forth and unites with what is outside us. We are not aware that we are the arena in which this union takes place. What is inside us is the one pole, as it were, and what is outside us in the world is the other pole. These two must unite so that the evolution of the world can advance. And our meaning, the meaning of our human existence, is that we are allowed to participate in this. With the everyday knowledge of our normal consciousness, we know little of these things. But as we continue the process of gaining insight into them, we become increasingly aware that the site where the exchange takes place between the opposite forces, the North Pole and the South Pole of the world, if I may use this comparison, where they unite with one another, so that evolution can continue, is inside us. We learn from spiritual science that the place where the world's forces are brought into equilibrium is in us. We feel how the divine spiritual world lives in us, as though in a central point, how it unites with the outer world, and how in this way the two mutually fertilize one another. When we begin to sense that we are the arena where this takes place and know that we play a part in it, we will find our right place in life, grasp the whole meaning of life, and realize that by furthering our understanding of spiritual science, we will become more and more conscious of what, to begin with, is unconscious in us. Any development of higher spiritual forces is based on this. While it is beyond the scope of our normal consciousness to know that something within us unites with something outside, our higher consciousness is empowered to see these things. It actually develops that which has a connection with the outer world. Hence, it is necessary to have reached a certain degree of maturity, so that we do not indiscriminately mix what is within and what is outside. For as soon as we ascend to a higher stage of consciousness, what lives in us becomes reality. It is semblance only as long as we live in the ordinary normal consciousness. We shall be participating in divine spiritual activity. But why is it that we participate in this way? Is there meaning in this whole endeavor at all? If we are merely a kind of balancing apparatus for these opposing forces... Would these forces not be able to balance each other without us? A very simple consideration can show us what the situation is in this regard. Let us take a quantity of force. One part is inside, the other outside. The fact that these parts stand opposite each other has emerged without human involvement. Initially we keep them apart, but they're coming together at all depends on us. We bring them together within ourselves. This is a thought that rouses the very deepest mysteries within us if we think it in the right way. The gods have presented us with the world as a duality. Objective reality is outside, soul life inside us. 
We are confronted with this, and we are the ones who close the circuit, so to speak, thus bringing the two poles together. All this takes place inside us. It takes place in the arena of our consciousness. This is where our freedom comes into play, and it is at this point that we become independent beings. We must regard the whole structure of the universe not merely as a stage, an arena, but rather as a domain of collaboration. It is true that this notion raises a thought that is not easily understood by the ordinary world, not even when it is presented in philosophical terminology, for this is what I tried to do a number of years ago in my booklet titled Truth and Science. In it I showed how initially there is the activity of the senses, and after that the inner world, and how union, collaboration, between them is necessary. There this thought is developed in philosophical terminology. In those days I did not yet attempt to show the esoteric mysteries behind all this, but people did not even understand the philosophical approach at that time. Now it is becoming clear how we should understand the meaning of life. It takes on meaning inasmuch as we are to become collaborators in the world processes. What is inherent to the world is divided into two opposing camps and we are placed in the midst in order to bring them together. However, we should not think of this as a task that is confined within narrow limits. I know an amusing gentleman in Germany who often writes in German periodicals. Recently he wrote in a newspaper that it would be better for world evolution if human beings were to forever remain unable to solve the typical problems of the world, and that it would not be right if human beings were to succeed in grasping and solving them intellectually. For if they were to solve all these problems, then there would be none left, and nothing more for them to do. Apparently, there must always be doubts as regards an intellectual understanding of these problems, and imperfect things must forever go on happening. Obviously, this gentleman has no idea that normal consciousness actually progresses of its own accord once it has reached its limits, that a new polarity then arises, which represents a new task, because these poles must be reunited again. How long will this process of uniting have to continue? Until we have actually reached the stage where divine consciousness is repeated, re-enacted, in our own human consciousness. Having gained some idea of this riddle's vast dimensions, we may now move beyond the abstract answer, since we now realize that springing up within us, there are fertilizing seeds for a spiritual world that cannot progress without us. Now we can once again inquire after the meaning of life, for now we are working from a broader base. This is what we must now say. Once upon a time in our evolution, there was divine consciousness. It was there in all its immenseness. With it, we are at the beginning of existence. This divine consciousness initially forms copies. How do these copies differ from the divine consciousness? They differ in that there were many, whereas the divine consciousness is one. They also differ in that they were empty, whereas the divine consciousness was full of content. Consequently, these copies initially exist as a multiplicity, but they are also empty, 
just as we had an empty I, capital, over against a divine I that was filled with the whole world. But this empty I has become the arena where the divine content, which is divided into two opposing camps, is continually being united. And inasmuch as the empty consciousness continually creates balancing adjustments, it is gradually being filled with what was originally in the divine consciousness. And so evolution proceeds in such a way that the individual consciousness becomes filled with what the divine consciousness had as content in the beginning. This is brought about by the continuing balancing adjustments within individual human beings. Does the divine consciousness need this for its own evolution? This question could be raised by many who do not quite understand the meaning of life. Does the divine consciousness need this for its own perfection, for its own evolution? No, the divine consciousness does not need this, for it has everything within itself. But the divine consciousness is not egoistic. It chooses to grant its own content to an infinite number of beings so that they too may have it. But for this to happen, these beings must first acquire all of it so that they have the divine consciousness within them. And as a result, the divine consciousness shall be multiplied. What once existed as a unity at the beginning of world evolution will then appear in great numbers, but will in the course of time decrease again as the individual consciousnesses gradually become entirely permeated with the divine. This evolution such as it has been described here, has actually always been part of human existence. It was there during the Saturn phase and similarly during the Sun and Moon phases of evolution. With respect to our Earth existence, it has now clearly developed. On Saturn, the first rudiments of the physical body experienced this development, bringing about a fertilizing process in an outward direction. On the Sun, Something similar happened with the rudiments of the etheric body, and so on. The process is the same, only it becomes ever more and more spiritual. Less and less remains on the outside waiting to be fertilized. As human beings evolve further, more and more will live within them, while less and less will remain outside waiting to be fertilized. And so ultimately human beings will increasingly have within them what is now outside. The outer world will become their inner being. Internalization, the German Verinnerlichung, is the other side of an advancing evolution. To unite what is inside with what is outside, to make inward what is external, these are the two elements through which human beings progress in evolution they will increasingly come to resemble the divine and ultimately become ever more inward. When the Vulcan existence arises, everything will have been fertilized. Everything external will have become internal. To become inward is to become divine. That is the goal and the meaning of life. However, we can only get at the truth of the matter when we do not merely build up abstract concepts, but rather go more thoroughly into all the details. 
We must delve into the matter and go into the details in such a way that when we form the name of an animal or a plant, something is generated within our inner being that unites the essence of the word with what lies at the base of that particular animal or plant seed and then lives on in the spiritual world. Our view of the world needs a revision with regard to evolution. For what has Darwinism done in this respect? It speaks of the struggle for existence, but fails to take into account that what is defeated in this struggle, and therefore perishes, is also subject to further evolution. A Darwinist sees only beings that achieve their goal and others that perish. It is a fact, however, that spirit flashes up from the beings that perish, meaning that further development is occurring not only for those who win in the physical struggle. The ones who seemingly perish go through an evolution in the spirit. That is the important thing. This is how we get closer to uncovering the meaning of life. Nothing perishes, neither that which is defeated nor that which is eaten, for it is all fertilized spiritually and springs up spiritually again. Much has perished throughout the whole evolution of earth and humanity without human beings having anything to do with it directly. Think of the whole of pre-Christian evolution. We know how this pre-Christian development had evolved. In the beginning, human beings came forth out of the spiritual world and gradually descended into the physical sense-perceptible world. Everything they had in the beginning, everything that lived in them has vanished, just as the life seeds that did not achieve their goal have vanished. We see that ever since the beginning and all throughout human evolution, countless things sink down into the abyss. While innumerable things sink down in the external evolution of human culture and of human life, up above the Christ impulse is developing. Just as in the human being the fertilizing seeds develop for the world around us, so does the Christ impulse develop for the sake of all that seemingly perishes in the human being. Then the mystery of Golgotha takes place. This is the fertilizing from above, the fertilizing of all that has perished. And with this a real change takes place in what has seemingly fallen away from the divine and sunk into the abyss. The Christ impulse takes effect and fertilizes it. And, from the mystery of Golgotha onward, we see a renewed blossoming and a new continuation in the course of earth evolution through the fertilization received with the Christ impulse. And so what we have come to know about this polarity also proves to be true even for this greatest event in earthly evolution. In our time, the seeds of culture that were lost with the decline of the ancient Egyptian civilization are coming to life. They are contained in the evolution of the earth. The Christ impulse has descended into them and fertilized them, and as a result of this fertilization, a repetition of the Egypto-Chaldean cultural epoch is taking place in our time. In the cultural epoch that will follow ours, the ancient Persian epoch will come again fertilized by the seed of the Christ impulse. And in the seventh cultural epoch, the ancient Indian epoch, that lofty spiritual culture emanating from the holy rishis, will reappear in a new form, fertilized by the Christ seed.
In this continuous development, we will be able to see that what we have learned to identify in the human being can become a process of reciprocity, inner and outer, spiritual and physical, continually fertilizing one another. Up above there is the Christ impulse, and down below the fertilizing with the Christ seed. Down below earthly culture as it is gradually progressing, and from above the Christ impulse as it descends through the mystery of Golgotha. Now we can also understand what it means to witness and experience the Christ event. The earth has to experience the cosmic mysteries, just as the individual human being has to witness and experience the divine mysteries. Through this, polarity was implanted in human beings, as it is in the earth. Two things have evolved like opposing poles, the earth itself and that which is above it, and has only become united with the earth through the mystery of Golgotha. Christ and the earth belong together. They needed to evolve separately as polarities first, so that it would become possible for them to unite. We see then that for things to come to true fruition, to become a reality, it is necessary for them to differentiate into polarities first, and that the polarities then unite again, so that life may progress. That is the meaning of life. If we see things in this light, then it is true that we feel ourselves to be in the midst of the world, feel that the world would be absolutely nothing without us. The mystic Angulus Silesius, a profound mystic indeed, made a remarkable statement which people may well find perplexing at first. Quote, I know that without me, God could not live for one instant. If I come to nothing, he must of necessity give up the ghost. Close quote. Christians who, based on confessional principles, denounce a statement like this, fail to take into account the historical fact that Angelus Silesius, even before he became a Roman Catholic, which he did in order to stand on what in his opinion was the firmest ground of Christianity, was a profoundly pious man, and yet pronounced this dictum. Anyone familiar with Angelus Silesius knows that this statement was not prompted by irreverence. All things in the world stand in opposition to other things, like polarities that could never meet if the human being were to be imagined away. The human being stands at the center and belongs there. When the human being thinks, the world thinks in him. The human being is the arena. The human being brings the thoughts together. And it is the same when the human being feels or uses his forces of will. We can now understand what it means to turn our gaze toward the widths of space and say, quote, It is the divine that fills it, and it is the divine that must unite with the earth seed. Quote. The human being can indeed say, quote, The meaning of life is within me. Quote. The gods have set themselves certain goals and they have also chosen the arena in which these goals are to be achieved. The human soul is that arena. Therefore, if the human soul looks deeply enough into itself and does not only want to solve the riddles of far-off spaces, then it finds within itself the arena 
in which gods are carrying out their deeds, and the human being is collaborating. This is what I tried to express in words that can be found in my mystery drama titled The Soul's Probation, namely, how the gods work inside human beings, how the meaning of the world comes to expression in the souls of human beings, and how the meaning of the world will live on in the souls of human beings. What is the meaning of life? It is that this meaning will live in human beings themselves. This is what I tried to express in words which the soul can say within itself. Quote, Within your thinking, cosmic thoughts hold sway. Within your feeling, cosmic forces weave. Within your willing, cosmic beings work. Lose yourself in cosmic thoughts. Experience yourself through cosmic forces. Create yourself from beings of will. In worlds far reaches, do not end through thinking's play of dreams. Begin within expanded spirit spheres and end in depths of your own soul. You'll find the aims of gods when you can know in you, yourself. Close quote. If we wish to say something that is true, rather than something that merely occurs to us, then it must always be spoken out of the mysteries of the Spirit. This is extremely important. Therefore you must not think that words used in esoteric works, whether in prose or poetry, can be in the same style as the wording developed in other literary works. Esoteric works, which genuinely spring from truth, truth regarding the world and its mysteries, come into being when the soul lets cosmic thoughts resound within it, when it lets itself be set aflame by cosmic feelings rather than by its own personal feelings, and when it has truly created itself out of world beings of will. It is an inherent part of the mission of our spiritual movement that we learn to distinguish between what streams out from the mysteries of the cosmos and what our own fantasy invents arbitrarily. Our culture will gradually evolve to the point where arbitrary inventiveness will be replaced by what is living in the human soul in such a way that it forms a polarity to the spiritual component that corresponds to it. Things created in this way become, in their turn, fertilizing seeds that unite with the spirit. They have a purpose in the world process. And this insight can give us quite a different sense of responsibility toward the things we do, for now we know that the things we bring about are fertile seeds, not sterile ones that simply fizzle out. Accordingly, we must allow these seeds, too, to come into being from out of the depths of the world soul. Now you might ask, quote, But how can this be achieved? Close quote by patience, by gradually getting to the point where any kind of personal ambition is killed off. Personal ambition, as it grows ever stronger, tempts us to produce what is merely personal, instead of allowing the divine, that which is an expression of the divine in us, to speak to us. How are we to know that the divine is speaking in us? We must obliterate everything that comes merely out of ourselves. And above all, we must put an end to any kind of ambitious aspiration. 
This will then engender the right polarity in us and will create truly life-giving seeds in our soul. Impatience is the worst guide in life. It is what ruins the world. If we succeed in this, you will see, as has been explained earlier, that the meaning of life is found in the manner described, through the fertilization of the outer with the inner. We will then also understand that if our inner being is not right, we scatter the wrong kind of fertilizing seeds in the world. What is the result of this? The result is that deformities are born into the world. Our present culture is filled with such deformities. All over the world prose and poetry is written today, one could almost say by steam power, and in the near future maybe even by the power of hot air balloons. While as early as the 18th century, a well-known author wrote, quote, These days a single country produces five times as many books as the earth requires for its good. Close quote. And the situation has become much worse since then. These are things that surround present-day culture with spiritual entities not fit for life, beings that should not and would not have come into existence if human beings had the necessary patience. But there is something else, too, that will arise in the human soul, like a kind of opposite pole. Patience will develop, so that the soul does not madly scatter around what is merely a product of ambition and egoism. This must not be taken as a kind of moral sermon, but as a statement of fact. It is a fact that ambitious aspirations in our souls give rise to the kind of fertilizing seeds that generate deformities in the spiritual world. To suppress these and to gradually transform them will be a fruitful task in a distant future. It is the mission of spiritual science to accomplish this task. And it is the meaning of life that the spiritual scientific worldview shall thereby be integrated into the whole meaning of life. That meaning in life shall flow into us from everywhere, and that everywhere in life things shall be full of meaning. This is what spiritual science wants to teach us human beings, that we are in the midst of meaningfulness, and can truly express it in these words, quote, Within your thinking, cosmic thoughts hold sway. Within your feeling, cosmic forces weave. Within your willing, cosmic beings work. Lose yourself in cosmic thoughts. Experience yourself through cosmic forces. Create yourself from beings of will. In world's far reaches, do not end through thinking's play of dreams. Begin within expanded spirit spheres and end in depths of your own soul. You'll find the aims of gods when you can know in you yourself. This, my dear friends, is the meaning of life as human beings must understand it at present. This is what I wish to consider together with you. If we understand it fully and make it entirely our own, then the souls that have become divine will let it become effective in your souls. You must describe the fact that these lectures are so difficult to understand to the circumstance that karma has imposed by restricting a subject as important as, in quotes, the meaning of life, to two short lectures.
and to the fact that much could only be hinted at, which can then only become fully alive in your own souls. And this is also something that can be contemplated as a polarity, that a suggestion can be given which is then to be worked on further through meditation, that this continued individual work then gives content and meaning to our collaborative work, and that this can then become so meaningful that our souls begin to interact with one another. This is the essence of genuine love, and at the same time a balancing of polarities. At the point where anthroposophical thoughts find entrance into souls, there they should stimulate the other poles, and in meeting these other poles find their own balance. This, then, is what can work like an anthroposophical music of the spheres. If in keeping with this principle we work in harmony with the spiritual world, and if we truly live in anthroposophy, then we shall also be united in this anthroposophical life. This is how I would like you to understand our coming together here for these lectures. These spiritual matters have been an expression of the spirit of love, and are dedicated to the spirit of love among us as anthroposophists. Then this love, through the stimulating spark that is ours, will be instrumental for our mutual exchange of spiritual content. It will become something that helps us not only to receive, but also to become more and more active in our anthroposophical efforts. Then anthroposophy will become a means of spreading a love that touches the inmost depths of the human soul. Such love will live on. Then, as human beings who have to be separated in space, we shall attain within our anthroposophical movement love that endures, from the times when karma has brought us together and onward to those times when we have to be separated again on the physical plane. In this way we shall remain united and know that the true reason for remaining united within the better part of our souls lies in the fact that with the best of our spiritual faculties we have together risen to divine spiritual heights. In this way, my dear friends, let us continue to be united with one another. The end of Lecture 2